As you know, this is the weekend prior to the 4th of July, and it is the time in which we as a country celebrate our independence and celebrate what it has taken, not just to gain our independence, but to maintain our independence. One of the great wars that was fought so that we are able to worship freely and to preach freely, in which many have had laid down their lives was in World War II, in which the axis of evil and all of their atrocities had to be confronted for the sake of justice. And in January of 1945, when uh, the Allies were beginning to close in on Hitler and press in on Germany, there was a particularly wicked death camp, concentration camp, by the name of Auschwitz. You're probably in some ways uh, aware of it, but over a million people died in Auschwitz, most of them being Jews. But on January of 1945, as the Allies began to close in on Germany, they reached that death camp. And on the day of its liberation... On the day in which the armies got there and were able to to set free all of those that had been long imprisoned, there were two different reactions that were experienced. On one hand, you have a group, the, the, the Nazis, the Germans, for which it was not liberation at all. In fact, in the months leading up to the camp being liberated, Himmler realized what was happening, and he began to have them take down the chimneys and the smokestacks where they had burned and incinerated all of the corpses for the million-plus people that had been killed at their hands. He had them take all of the documentation from the medical experiment where they had used human beings like lab rats and had them heaped up and burned, trying to eliminate any evidence of all of the atrocities and wickedness that had taken place in that camp because he knew that as the Allies closed in, that once they got that, once they saw that information, once they saw the horrors, the horrible things that had taken place there, he knew that it would spell the condemnation of him, his regime, and all of those that had served beneath him. And so as the Allies got there and they liberated the camp, it, it, it brought thousands of them to be ultimately incarcerated for war crimes. 12% of those who were in leadership there were hanged on site. And on that day, it was not a day of rejoicing because of the liberation of the camp. Instead, it was a day of mourning and wailing and condemnation for all of those who had done such horrible things. But for those that had been imprisoned, for those who had been used for these horrible medical experiments, for those who had had worked and labored in these camps nearing to the point of death, most of them having had family members that had been killed on site, on the spot, instantaneously. It was a day of utter and total rejoicing in which their starvation could begin to be overcome, in which their tears could begin to be wiped away. A moment in which they could rejoice and celebrate and know that their horrible lives, the, the atrocities that they were facing, the certain death that was hanging over them could be wiped away and eliminated. Can you even imagine how your soul would rejoice? Can you even imagine how your soul would celebrate a liberation as wonderful as 
that. And brothers and sisters, that is the picture of what it will be like on the last day. That is the picture of what it will be on the last day. That when Christ returns and when the sky is illuminated and when the, when the trumpet sounds and the archangel cries, that on that day, the liberation will have arrived. The moment in which our tears can be wiped away, our souls set free from the bondage to sin and death, ultimately and finally, and for all of those who are in Christ, for all of those who are secure, there will be no condemnation. There will only be celebration, rejoicing like you have never known before. But for those who are not in Christ, for those who have lived indifferent to his appearing, for those who have even participated in the persecution of his church through continuing to stack up their own debt against the Lord as they sin against the Lord, that day of liberation, that day of celebration will for them be a day of total and utter mourning in which it will begin and never end, wailing and weeping that will not cease. So to that end, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24, as we see Jesus talking more about what to expect in the last days, what to expect as his coming becomes more apparent, what to expect as we live in this time and season of waiting. Once you get there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Now, we took another lightning strike this week, and apparently it knocked out the clock that I have on the back wall. So I think that's a sign from the Lord. I, I can't control lightning, but the Lord does. So y'all just buckle up, all right? <laughs> all right, Matthew chapter 24, we'll begin in verse 29 and read to the end of the chapter. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of, of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the day, the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus' disciples have come to him and they have pulled him aside, having heard Jesus' prophetic condemnation of the temple, having heard him say that there will be not be a single stone left upon another stone. And so Jesus has had his disciples now come to him privately, the Bible tells us, and they have asked him some questions, some clarifying questions about what is to come. And so the questions that they ask him are, Jesus, when is this going to happen? When are these things going to take place? That is, when is the destruction of the temple going to be a thing? When are the rocks going to be dismantled? And when are you going to return? When are you going to come back? And in the minds of the disciples, what we saw last week is that in their minds, these questions came together. These questions came together. That in their minds, that the temple would be destroyed. There would be this time of turbulence and tribulation. And once all of that was over and the temple was destroyed, that that would be when the old had completely went away, the total dissolution of the, uh, of the old covenant, and now would be the coming of the new covenant, that Christ would now come in his power and glory to set up his messianic reign on the earth and that he would lead from an actual physical throne here on the earth from that day forward and as a result they would be vindicated as a result they would no longer look like fools in this age for following after this uneducated rabbi that now it would become apparent to everyone that he in fact is the messiah that he in fact is the long-awaited one of Israel to deliver them and to bring them into prosperity and to conquer all of their enemies and to set up an idyllic kingdom and an idyllic reign for the rest of eternity upon the throne of David. And so what Jesus' words must have been shocking for his disciples. They must have been shocking for his disciples because Jesus tells them that it's not going to be like that at all. It's not going to be like that at all. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples that this is going to take quite a while. And in the meantime, there is going to be tribulation. In the meantime, there is going to be turbulence. And that this turbulence is going to last so long that it's going to feel like Jesus' words aren't going to come true. It's going to feel like Jesus' words aren't the real thing. But the reality is, is that heaven and earth will pass away before the words of Christ are not fulfilled. That it's going to feel like he's not coming back. It's going to feel like he's very delayed. It's going to feel like he's never going to set up his kingdom, but Christ has set it and he has set it and will perform it. That Christ will come in power and glory and he will set up and establish his kingdom. 
So what Jesus is doing here is he's telling them what they can expect in the days ahead. What it's going to look like in the days ahead. The tribulation that they're going to experience. The turbulence that they're going to experience. And in fact, what they can expect and what they can teach others to expect when Christ does return. The kinds of things that are going to be taking place and, are going to, and what things are going to be look like when the sky ultimately splits and Christ comes to get and collect his church. Now, one of the things that becomes stunning and startling to us because it's, it's passed over so quickly and so often is the timeline that Jesus lays out. The timeline that Jesus lays out. But for virtually 1,800 years of the church's history, this timeline was unquestioned. This timeline was assumed. You'll see what he says. He says in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. What days is he talking about? He's talking about the way they answered the question, right? That they had asked the question, what are these things going to be like? What are these days going to be like? And then Jesus had unpacked for them betrayal. He had unpacked for them that they were going to have brother, turn against brother. He had unpacked for them that, that what they're going to experience is a great persecution and purging within the church, that they're going to have false teachers that are going to rise up and lead many astray. They would even lead astray the elect if that were possible. And so he's saying that after these days, after this, after this tribulation, then I'm going to return. Then I'm going to come back. Now, there have been many who have said that Jesus would not allow his church to go through a tribulation. There have been many that would say that Jesus would not allow those that he has brought into grace and, and brought into salvation and brought into utter deliverance to not allow them to go and to experience this type of turbulence and this type of hardship. But Jesus says it explicitly. Jesus says it plainly. That these are the things that you're going to experience. You're going to experience these childbirthing pains. And then you're going to experience a particularly sharp pain in the destruction of the temple, in the siege of Jerusalem. And then over the course of history, as we await my return, it's going to be difficult. Your brother is going to betray you. Your, your father is going to turn you in. You are going to be murdered and killed for my name's sake. You're going to have false teachers that you have to constantly face down. This is your expectation. This is what you are to face. But the reason that Christ would allow us to do that is because as we sang just a few minutes ago, he allows us to do that because it's for our good. It's for our good. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about what a blessing and what a privilege and an honor it is to share in the sufferings of Christ, to share in the cross of Christ. We saw last week that Jesus is going to use the persecution of the church to, pur to purify the church and to strengthen the church. That Jesus is going to use the tribulation that all of us are even in this day walking through. And he's going to use that to test our faith and to test our obedience and to draw faith out of us so that we can walk in the midst of this turbulence, walk in the midst of this tribulation and live faithfully for Christ anyway, and not turn back, and not turn away, and walking with Christ in the midst of this tribulation, do you know what that does for the believer? It stores up rewards in heaven that you will enjoy forever. That God is going to use, according to his providence, the delay of Christ's return to bring more people into the kingdom of God, to bring more people to salvation, and to increase the reward of his now purified church. And so this is not the wrath of God. 
This is a gift from God. This is the kindness of God that as difficult as these days are and as scary as these days are and as gut-wrenching as many of our experiences are, they are still yet a gift to us, church. That God has not forsaken us. Instead, God is strengthening us. He is solidifying us. He is galvanizing us. And He is using it to increase the reward that we aren't going to share for a little while, that we aren't going to just enjoy for a second, but the reward that we are going to delight in His kindness, His inheritance for ever. And so we hear this timeline, and for the disciples, for a second, you can imagine it sets them back on their heels a little bit. It sets them back on their heels a little bit. For us, it might set, set us back on our heels for a little bit. But as we continue to go, what, we, what becomes apparent to us is that it is going to be a blessing to every one of us. And just as we talked about in the opening, there are going to be two different reactions to Jesus in that time. Look at verse 30 with me, if you would. Verse 30, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So what I want you to see here is that there is going to be a reaction by the nations. This is a universal and encompassing term. This means as far as you can go, as far as you can fly, as much as you can spin the globe, every tribe, every nation will be represented. And it is an encompassing term, meaning that it includes most people. That this will be the experience of most people. So many people, in fact, that Jesus can say literally every nation around the globe universally will have this experience, and he says that they will be mourning. That they will be mourning. The word mourning there, it means to wail. It means to be so overcome with grief, to be so struck by the agony of your circumstances and the agony of the realizations that have come into your life that you literally begin to pound your chest and convulse. He says, this is the experience of the nations. That when I come back and when I return, that the nations will look up and behold me in the sky, behold me in power and in glory, and beholding me, they will wail and weep and gnash their teeth. Now, why is that? Last week we saw in verse 14 that Jesus made a promise. That Jesus made a promise that he intends to fulfill through the ministry of his church. And it is the promise that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will hear the gospel. Every nation will hear the good news that there is deliverance available to them from their sin to be reconciled to God the Father through Christ the Son who has come to die as their substitute. But the reaction of most... The reaction of most to that good news will be indifference. Will be indifference. They will hear the good news about God. They will hear the new good news about what Christ has accomplished. And they will hear it and continue to live their lives as they've always lived them. If they are secular, they will continue being secular. If they worship false gods, they will increase their condemnation by rejecting God and worshiping their false gods. 
If they are wrapped up in their self-absorbed lives, they will continue to be wrapped up in their self-absorbed lives. And in so doing, when they come, when Christ returns and the sky is divided, they will not be ready for his appearing. In fact, he says that most of them, many of them, will not just be indifferent toward him, but many of them will join in with the persecution of his church. That many of them will join in with the persecution of his church and not only reject his message, but try to oppress his message, try to stop his message from going out. And they will, in so doing, invite his condemnation, invite his judgment. And when the king returns, when the trumpet sounds, when Christ makes his appearance, they will look up and they will realize the error of their ways and they will well. Iron City, we must well this day for those who will well that day. We must mourn this day for those who will mourn that day. Our earth and our world has seen great tragedy. It has seen tragedy, natural disasters, human tragedies, the tragedies of wars, wars and rumors of wars, as Jesus has already said. But on that day, there would be a wailing, there will be a screaming, there will be a, an agony that has been unseen and unknown throughout the history of our creation. As they will look up and they will know that it is not just death that has come, but death spiritually and physically that will last forever, that for them there will not be afterlife, there will only be the wrath of God, and seeing and beholding Christ in his glory and power, they will know this with certainty and with clarity. And we should stop and think about who those people will be. In those people will be precious families, with moms and dads and little girls and little boys, grandmoms and granddads. Now, among those who will be wailing that day and mourning that day will be all of our children who hear the good news and yet remain disobedient and unchanged by it. Among the wailing that day will be our grandchildren. And they will be all of the ones that believe that all of this is unscientific mythology and dismissed it as being anti-intellectual and unenlightened. And on that day, they will mourn and they will wail. It's the coworkers and the teammates that you go and see every single day, and they live as though they are the only people in the world uh, at all. They, they live as though they are unaccountable for any of the things that they do. And down on that day, brothers and sisters, those people that you joke with in the break room, those people that you cut up with at practice, they will mourn and they will wail because they will receive a condemnation and a judgment that will never end. Brothers, if we just, for a second, if we just got a fraction of the grief that will take place on that day and the agony that will take place on that day, we would be willing to have calloused feet and bruised reputations to live on mission and to take the good news as adequately and pleading with all of our friends and all of our families to the ends of our community and to the ends of the earth. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so brothers and sisters, I ask us, will we mourn today for the ones who will mourn on that day? Will we grieve today for the ones who will be in agony that day? Will we let our hearts continue in indifference for them? Will we let our hearts continue being callous 
toward them? Or will we wear our feet out, taking the gospel to them and pleading with them, turn, I love you, listen to me, turn. There's a second reaction though. Because Jesus says that when he comes in his power and his glory, like a thief in the night, that he will gather his church, he will gather the elect, from the four winds of the earth, that is the four corners of the earth, that every person from every tribe and every tongue, all of those that have heard the good news and responded in faith, all of those who have heard the good news and lived with readiness and vigilance toward Christ's coming, that they will be gathered with him, ascend to the air, and all of the earth, all of those in mourning, all of those in grief will see them and behold them, and God will say to them, this is my church with whom I'm well pleased. See, he says that he comes on a cloud, right? Throughout Matthew, we've seen this twice before. Once at Jesus' baptism, once at Jesus' transfiguration. And in both accounts, in both instances, the cloud is the very presence of God the Father who looks down upon his son and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Oh, church, on that day, it's going to be us. It's going to be us. It's going to be all of us who have been adopted as children through his son to be his sons. It's going to be every single one of us. And just like the father has said of Christ the son, he's going to say of the church, his children, these are my children. These are my sons and my daughters, and they are those with whom I am well pleased. And we will descend from the clouds to set up the throne of Christ in power and glory and to rule with him forever. And on that day, every race will be reconciled. Every wrong will be righted. Every tear will be wiped away. Every war will finally end. And there will be rejoicing, church. There will be rejoicing. There will be a banquet table spread out in the household of God, in the house of Christ Jesus, celebrating his ascension to the throne and the inauguration of his kingdom and the coming on the war horse. And we're all going to be there, man. We're all going to be there celebrating with him, praising him, elevating him so that all will know that our king is in fact the forever king, that our king is in fact the king who will reign with benevolence and kindness and glory and all of us are going to reign and rule with him so brothers and sisters i ask you on that day will you be mourning or will you be rejoicing will you be mourning or will you be rejoicing will christ coming will it be good news or will it be agonizing and terrifying news. So Jesus says that for those who, that, that, that his coming, that what you're going to see when you've seen all of these things take place, it's going to be like a fig tree. That the fig tree begins to sprout leaves and the, the limbs begin to become supple. And when you know it begins to sprout leaves and the, and the leaves and the limbs become limber, you know the fruit is coming. You know the fruit is coming. 
And so Jesus says that for all of those who have been prepared, for all of those who have seen these things and obeyed his word and recognized his word, that when they see them, that what they will begin to recognize is that like a fig tree soon to bear fruit, that Christ's word is soon to bear the fruit of his return. And so he says, you better be ready. You better be ready. That the difference between rejoicing and mourning is readiness. That the difference between whether that day is a wonderful day, the greatest day in all of human history, or the worst day that you could even imagine, the difference between those two days is whether or not you are ready for his appearing. Now, it becomes important what these things are. I've made mention of this a little bit already. But, but people have used this particular text in verse 35, is, uh, verse 30, verses 34 and 35 is what I have in my mind. It says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so people have come to this text and they say, look, Jesus made errors. Jesus made mistakes. Jesus is not inerrant. Jesus is not infallible. You cannot trust him because Jesus thought he was going to come back before his disciples died. And we all know Jesus hasn't shown up. Jesus hasn't come back. So look, Jesus was in error. Jesus cannot be trusted, except that they missed the entire context of what Jesus has been saying. The entire context of what Jesus has been saying. What did he say these things would be? Look at verse 3 with me. Turn all the way back to verse 3. This is how, remember we told it, this entire, this entire Olivet Discourse is in response to the questions asked in verse 3. Okay? Look at what it says in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Alright? These things are the temple. The temple being destroyed. The temple being wrecked. This incredibly sharp birth pain. That's what the disciples are asking about. That's what has prompted their question. And so Jesus is continuing to, and he does this a couple different times, refers back to these things, and these things are the tribulation of the church. Those things that did in fact take place in AD 70. Those things that did in fact take place within the generation of the disciples. And so he's saying, these things are going to take place then, and you must live in readiness from this point forward. You must live prepared for my appearing from this day forward. And so this is not a dispute at all. This is not a question at all. That is clear that these things have happened and in fact have not dismissed the words of Jesus, but have validated the words of Jesus. And what's interesting is what they miss is verse 35 when he says, heaven and earth will not pass away, but my word will endure forever. He said, look, it's going to feel like heaven and earth is going to fade away. It's going to look like my words are never going to come true. Why? Because this is going to take a while. This is going to take a while. And so the argument that they are making is a foolish argument because Jesus himself is actually saying the exact opposite of what they're accusing him of saying. And so for us, we come to this and Jesus is bringing it to bear in our hearts of whether or not we will be ready, whether or not we will be prepared for his, his returning. And I think we see at least three different applications, three different examples of what Jesus gives. The first being this. Don't waste your time trying to equal God's knowledge. Be ready. Don't waste your time trying to equal God's knowledge. Instead, be ready. So Jesus comes and he begins to, to explain to them what it's going to be like in that day. And this is what he says. He says something that's startling. He says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. 
All of the angels of heaven, they don't know when I'm coming back. They don't know the date of my appearing. I don't know. They don't know. Only God the Father knows in the sweetness of his providence and in the plan of his decree. Only God the Father knows. So when people come to you and they say, hey, look, here's a Christ, or there's a Christ, or I'm the Christ, or people come and they have impressive diagrams and drawings and dragons and Bitcoin and all of those things. When, when, they, when they come, they spread all of these things out and say, look, this is how we can know Jesus is going to come here or on this day or even within this month or within this year. You can know all of them are fools. You can know that not a single one of them can be trusted. You can know that they are attempting to woo you with a false ministry that appears to have some form of the power of heaven, but in fact denies the gospel altogether by preaching something false. Because I don't know, the angels don't know, only God the Father knows. So don't rack your brain, don't fill your mind, don't live your life trying to equal God's knowledge. Instead, live ready. Live ready. See, that's been the sin of mankind from the beginning, hasn't it? In Genesis chapter 3, why did Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What did the, the enemy tempt them with? What did the serpent tempt them with? If you go and eat, God knows that then you will know all that he knows. If you will just come and you will eat of the tree, then you will have a knowledge that equals the knowledge of God. All of the men with charts, all of the men with, with great decoders for the Bible, you know what they're trying to do? They're falling into the sin from Genesis chapter 3. They're trying to know what only God is to know, what only God intends for himself to know. They're going and trying to break some code that God didn't write in code and doesn't want broken. So Jesus is rather, rather than, than worrying yourself with this foolishness, rather than worrying yourself with this ignorance, just be ready. Just be ready. He says, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Will be like the days of Noah. Now, think about what, what was true of Noah. What did God tell Noah? God told Noah, I'm going to come and I'm going to, or I'm going to bring my condemnation upon the earth, my judgment against the earth. I'm going to send a rainstorm, a flood that will not end until it leads to the destruction of every single person alive. And having heard that, he says, Noah, so you go and you build a boat for the animals and for your family. Now, he didn't tell Noah when he was going to rain. He didn't tell Noah when the flood was going to come. He didn't give Noah any other signs except this is my word to you. This is what's going to happen. And if you disobey me, you are going to be swept up in the earth like the rest of mankind. And in a process that wouldn't have taken days, wouldn't have taken weeks, wouldn't have taken months, but took years, Noah builds the ark. Noah builds this magnificent, expansive ship. And he has to get all these supplies that are ready and, and have them prepared. And then he has to have like the perishable stuff. He has to have that ready. He has to begin planning and strategizing on what animals and all, how all these things are going to fit together. And he has to do all of that before he sees the first drop of rain. He has to do all of that before he sees God's word fulfilled in the least. And Noah, a man who lived hundreds of years, waited decades, if not scores of years, if not centuries, for God to come and to fulfill his word. 
And to Noah, it would have felt like the word of God wasn't going to come to pass. It was going to, it felt, must have felt at times like the promise of God was not going to be until the raindrops fell. Until the raindrops fell from the sky and the word of the Lord was then assured. And even though he had preached to his generation and even though he had declared the truth to his generation, Noah was found among his generation as being the only one that was prepared and ready for the judgment of God. And just as God said, as Noah and his family and the animals boarded the ark, they were delivered from the wrath of God because God had told them so, they had obeyed him so, and now they were delivered. Brothers and sisters, that is our situation. That is our circumstance. I know many of you throughout the course of your Christian life, you have heard charlatans come up and say, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. This is when he's coming. This is how he's coming. And it can be easy for us to grow tired of the message. And it can become easy for us to lose the glory of the message and to lose the good news of that message and to begin to roll our eyes and just dismiss it outright. Brothers and sisters, Jesus tells us that we would be in grave error. Grave error to let the charlatans and the false teachers lead us astray with their false message, whether it's in obeying it or it's in dismissing it altogether. Rather, we must be ready. You see, Jesus' delay Jesus' delay in coming, Jesus' delay in return, it is a gift to the church. It is a gift to the church. What date predictors have shown us is that when they predict the dates, they quit their jobs, sell their houses, and begin to do crazy stuff. They, begin, they, they, they stop living their lives. They stop enjoying the gifts that God has given to them, and they begin to waste all of their time with this false knowledge. And if God had told us, don't you think that's what we would have done? If God would have said that in, on you know, uh, July the 4th of 2018 that he was going to send Jesus back, do you know what all of us would have done? We would have lived like hellions up until about July 3rd and a half. And we would have done whatever we wanted to do. And then all of a sudden, every one of us would have gotten right with Jesus, right? And we would have gotten ready. And it wouldn't have been true. And it wouldn't have been fruitful. And it wouldn't have been profitable. And the reward in heaven would be zilch. God has given us a sermon. Christ Jesus has given us a sermon to preach to ourselves so that we will not live with that type of ambivalence. Christ Jesus has given us a sermon that we can preach to ourselves that allows us to redeem the time and take hold of the lives that God has given us and seize the day for our good and for his glory. And that sermon is this, be ready, I'm coming. Be ready, he's coming. Today, he may arrive. Today, the sky may split. Today, the trumpet may sound. Today, the archangel may cry. Today, from the four corners of the earth, the church may ascend. Today may be the day, like a thief in the night, that Christ Jesus returns. And if today is the day, how do you want to be found? So he gives us a sermon that we can preach to ourselves that will prevent us from wasting this gift of life that God has given to us. And so he says, well, if, if you work in a farm, go and work in the farm, but be ready. Live in obedience to me as a farmer, but be ready. Go and, and if, you, if, you, if you mill, mill uh, grain, 
Go and mill the grain. Go about your life. It is a gift that God has given you. Go to work. Do what God has told you to do. Provide for your family. Live in your church. Live a quiet and dignified life. But as you do it, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your circumstances. Look to the sky and await for his appearing. For today may be the day. Brothers and sisters, are you ready? Are you ready? Do you live in thought and mind that today may be the day of Christ's appearing? Do you live in thought that today may be the final hour? Do you live with an awareness that today may be the very last time that you have to kiss your wife or hug your kids? Today may be the day that is the last time that you can tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Today may be the day that you can, the final day that you can live in obedience and glory according to the scriptures for Christ Jesus and store up rewards for yourself in heaven. Like today may be it. Do you live mindful of the return of Christ in a steady state of vigilance and readiness? Are you ready? Are you ready? The second thing that Jesus teaches us is don't ignore God's warnings through frivolous preoccupation. Be ready. Don't ignore God's warnings through frivolous preoccupation. Instead, be ready. See, Jesus says why? He says that those that are in Noah's day, what did they do? Outside of Noah, everybody else were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. He says of the, the servant, he tells the, of a servant in the last parable that has a decision to make. The master is gone for a long time and it doesn't feel like the master is going to come back. Again, Jesus alluding to this is going to take a while. And, he, and he, he talks about this servant that has to make a decision. And with, with the master not coming, do I just start like hanging out and doing what I want to do and living for myself? Or do I do all of the things in preparation for the master? Do I do all of the things that I know the master has called for me to do so that I'm ready if in fact he does come back like he said he would come back? And Jesus is saying that most people are like Noah's generation and most people are like the wicked servants, that they will not believe that he is actually going to return. They do not believe that he's actually going to do what he has said that he's going to do. And so they become preoccupied with the fleeting pleasures and satisfying themselves here on the earth. They become preoccupied with temporal matters that mean nothing in the scheme of eternity and becoming so preoccupied and obsessed in their minds that they lose sight of the fact that they are going to be answerable to God forever. Does that sound a lot like us? Does that sound a lot like us? That even those of us within the church we live our lives obsessed and preoccupied with things that won't even matter next week. I'm talking to myself. That I live most of my life worried about things that won't matter two days from the day that I start worrying about them. And day after day after day, I find a new crisis to obsess over. Day after day after day, for day I find a new circumstance to, get, to agonize over and to plead with God over and to be fearful of and to be anxious about. I find a new pleasure here on earth that I have to have and I have to take part of and I have to experience or my life is meaningless or my life isn't significant at all. And so I, I look at all the people around and think, man, I, want, I need to do that and I gotta do that and I gotta be like that. And if I don't do any of that, I've wasted my life and I feel guilty about that. 
And what I've discovered is I am filled with worrying about things today that won't mean a hill of beans on that day. On that day. On the day of Christ returning. And so my mind is preoccupied with things that do nothing for eternity. My mind is preoccupied and obsessed with things so that it takes me off center. And now I am not living out the great commandment of loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. And so with this obsessive mind, I am so preoccupied with temporal things, with meaningless things in the scope of eternity that I'm not looking for Christ's return at all. What about you? What about you? What are you thinking about? Even right now, as God's word is being preached, what are you thinking about? As you, as you leave, how quickly will your mind shift from the things of God to the preoccupation of the day? As you go and you talk with your kids, how quickly will you move past all that God is seeking to do in your heart and in your life and your family and seek and move on to the preoccupation, to the obsession, to the worry, to the anxiety of that day? How, far, how quickly will you move past your worship? How Are you able to worship at all? Or even as you sing the songs, is your mind somewhere else with the preoccupations of this temporal world? Brothers and sisters, be ready. Be ready. Christ may return. And when Christ returns, it will not matter what your boss has said. When Christ returns, it will not matter what your career ladder looks like. When Christ returns, it will not matter all of the obsessions that you worry yourself sick over here on earth. When Christ returns, all of that will dissolve. And on that day, the worries of this day will be wiped away. So brothers and sisters, don't worry yourselves with the preoccupation of all the frivolous things that we obsess about. Obsess over Christ. Obsess over Christ. Set your mind on Christ. Give your heart to Christ. Give your life to Christ. Go with Christ. Pursue Christ. And on that day, you will rejoice, realizing that not a single moment of a single day has been wasted when that day was centered upon Christ. Center it upon Christ, church. The final thing I want to point out to you is that Jesus instructs us, don't procrastinate obedience because Christ is unseen. Be ready. Don't procrastinate obedience because Christ is unseen. Be ready. This is the plight of the servant, isn't it? And how he's going to determine whether he is going to be faithful or he is going to be unfaithful. Whether he is going to be productive or he is going to be lazy and idle and slothful. He hasn't seen the master. The master is nowhere to be found. He cannot see him. He cannot find him. He's, starting to, he's stopping to expect him. And so what do you do? For all of us, we can become so, so casual so complacent in our waiting for Christ that we stop expecting Christ at all because we don't see him. We don't see him. And when we don't see him, we begin to put off our obedience to another day. We begin to say, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get saved when I'm in my 20s. I'll return to faithfulness when I'm in my, after college. Once I can sow my wild oats and do my wild thing, then, then I'll be obedient. I'm procrastinating my obedience. I'll begin to, to serve and to live on mission once my kids get a little bit older. 
Once my kids just get a little bit older, then I will begin to live faithfully. Then I will begin to live obediently. Then I will begin to live on mission. I just, I just need to get my children a little bit older. I need my kids to get out of high school. Once they graduate from high school and I kind of come into the empty net, then, then I will be able to be obedient to all the things. Then I will be have time to observe God's word. Then I will have time to memorize God's word. Then I will have time to, to, to be discipled and to make disciples. Then I will have time. Well, once I, once I finish helping my adult children, once they kind of are able to get their ducks in a row and I'm able to kind of put those things together, once my health gets a little bit better, once I start feeling better, then I will study God's word. Then I will go deep with Christ. Then I will do all the things that God has called me to do. And again and again, because we do not see him, we stop expecting him and we procrastinate our obedience as though we have plenty of time. But brothers and sisters, what if he comes back today? What if he comes back today? What if today is the day of his appearing? What if today is the day that the master comes home and he finds you unready and he says, you wicked servant, throw him to the hypocrites and you are sawn into and cast into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth because the difference is ready or unready. Are you ready? Do you actually believe in the Christ that you can't see? You see, this time of waiting is a testing ground of true faith. Jesus has said that the one who endures until the end, he is my disciple. He is the one that will enjoy the reward of heaven. Today, are you living in obedience without seeing Christ? Are you proving that your faith is genuine and real through the obedience and the fruitfulness of your life? See, this question and every other question that we've asked, it boils down to this. Do you actually believe he's coming back? Do you actually believe that Jesus reigns over our lives? Do you actually believe that Jesus is the Savior that died for your sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and will one day come and consummate his kingdom? Do you actually believe that one day the trumpet will sound, and that one day the sky will split, and that one day the archangel will cry, and that one day the church will be gathered with him into the air? Do you actually believe the things that the Bible says? Do you actually believe what Christ has said? Because if you believe it, brothers and sisters, if you believe it, there is no other response than vigilance and readiness and diligence. There is no delay to obey today and tomorrow and the next day. There is no time to wait on the mission that God has called us to. Today he may return. Today he is still the good and risen Christ. Today he is as good as he will be on that day. So do not delay your obedience, church. Do not delay your readiness another second. Come. Come to Christ. Obey Christ. Obsess over Christ that you might be found among the rejoicing and not among the mourning. Let's pray together.